Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is going on? What's happening? The last Monday of January has come, and believe it or not, almost a month is in the books. So let's get it, people. Here on the J Reels Podcast, where you're listening to the latest and greatest of what goes on in the world of sports. I am your host, J Reels. If this is your first time getting a chance to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of hardwood, gridiron, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and full effect. So once again, thank you very much for downloading and listening to this uh, podcast. Welcome aboard. And for those who have been with me from episode 1 to 10, 20, 30, 40, and now 50, 5 half a century, I welcome you guys back. Tons to discuss here as we go through the sports landscape. We'll touch on the NBA and everything that's happening there. Anthony Davis is demanding a trade. Let the Lakers and Celtics have a tug of war because you would think those are going to be the first two teams that will be fighting for his services. But this is a caveat. It's not going to happen, I don't think, anytime between now and the end of this year. Well, especially the trade deadline, which is actually a week from this coming Thursday. That's right, February 7th is the trade deadline. So definitely stay tuned for that. We'll talk about everything that's happening in baseball. We'll recap the Hall of Fame inductees, the newly minted Hall of Fame inductees. Mariano Rivera, in a historic fashion, getting 100% of the votes. Why Mike Mussina, to me, is not a Hall of Famer. I'll get into all of that. Also, the NFL. Yes, besides the Super Bowl, there are other things that are happening in football. This coming Saturday, they'll have the NFL Hall of Fame finalists that will be uh, nominated. I'll get through that whole list and give you my take on who should be in and who should be out. Also, the Pro Bowl. Give me a break. Not only that, but also the NHL All-Star Game was this past weekend. We also have the NBA All-Star Game in weeks to come. You'll get all of my feelings about that and why I think it's just a waste of time to even put on the channel, let alone turn on the TV to watch it. But the Super Bowl is front and center. Tonight is the big showdown, the big showdown between the media and the players. It's media day or media night. It's become a primetime thing. You can thank Roger Goodell for that. Both teams are already in Atlanta. And after the next couple of days where Wednesday they'll start ramping up practice and everything that's going to go on between now and Sunday, you're going to be bored to tears and just waiting for this game to start around 6.26 p.m. Eastern time. But that's why it's good to listen to this podcast now so you get it out of the way. Whether you pick this up today on your commute home or tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, you don't have to hear anything else or anyone else for that matter other than this analysis of the game. And before we even get into that, the whole Super Bowl experience, as we know, it becomes just a sideshow. You get all these crazy questions. You get guys in costumes. You can't even take half of these people seriously. So that's why it's become such an event. But at the same time, it's also a circus to have people from whatever outlets that they come from dressed up as butterflies or marshmallows or whatever it may be. And that's how silly it gets. So if you could just put that all aside and just focus on what the game is going to entail, how these two teams will match up against one another, that's what you're, and that's what everybody's focus should be on. So if you could just skip tonight, skip tomorrow, if you're trying to get anything about the Super Bowl, Is there going to be an interesting headline coming out of this? Well, of course, we know all the storylines, which we'll touch on. But unless a player comes out and says something that's just outlandish, whether it's a guarantee, some sort of prediction, maybe some pain, some suffering that maybe wants from a defensive player to an offensive player on the other team, or some sort of edge that they may have where, oh, yeah, we know their plays or their snap counts or any little tidbit. And I get that that's what the media is there for. They're trying to extract whatever it is that they can over the course of the next few days. But you know what? 
I can't sit and listen to all this. I can't take all of it seriously because, as we know, when that ball gets kicked off on Sunday and everything that happens over the course of the three-and-a-half-hour time span there this coming Sunday night, that's all that matters. Who cares about, oh, I'm going to beat this guy at the line of scrimmage. I'm going to punish this one, that player, this team. Brady's a pretty boy that you heard last year with Lane Johnson on the Eagles. Uh, Does it all really matter? You just want to get to the game, and that's the bottom line. And let's get to it. We know about the storylines. Brady and Belichick for the ninth time here in the Super Bowl for the last five years, three in a row. Last time that's happened was the Buffalo Bills back in the 90s, as we all know what happened with them. And then you had the Dolphins in the 72-74 to 74 range where they went to three straight Super Bowls, winning the back two, if you recall, when they beat the Redskins in the perfect game, or in their perfect season, I should say. And then the other game that they won was against the Minnesota Vikings. So here we are, looking at this matchup, and to me what it boils down to is three things. The first thing is going to be the line of scrimmage for both sides. Whoever wins that battle, the trenches, to me is going to win the game. And I understand people say, Jay Reels, of course. That's what football is each and every week. Well, it's different with this matchup for two reasons. One, you have the Ram defensive line, as we all know, could be as dominating as any defensive line ever. That's right, I said ever. Because when you have a guy that has a reputation like Ndamukong Tsu, and I understand his reputation is more on the bad end than on the good, but when you get the good Ndamukong Tsu, he's as, probably as good as anybody in the National Football League. And then you have Aaron Donald, who is pretty much by far the best defensive lineman in the sport, and a lot of people may even argue he's the best defensive player in the sport. So when you have those two guys there, put Michael Brockers in the mix, it was a fine compliment on that line. And if they're able to push around that Patriot offensive line and not even just get to Tom Brady, as long as they can pressure him. And they got to do this all game long because, as we all know, the Patriot offense is a timing offense. That ball comes out of Brady's hands in less than two and a half seconds. So if somehow, some way, they could disrupt that offensive line, that is going to be primo for them to not only just win the game, but if they somehow, some way, get any type of pass rush or any type of pressure on them, as we've seen here in New York in Super Bowls 42 and 46, we know it could be a long day for that Patriot offense. And then also on the other side, same for the Rams. They want to try to push the defensive line of the New England Patriots to the point where if they can get Todd Gurley as close to 100% as possible, him running rampant like he did against the Cowboys back in the divisional round, if they could get anything out of C.J. Anderson, anything close to what they got in that same game, that's certainly going to bode well for them. So when I look at it from that standpoint, Ram O-line against the Pat D-line and then the Ram D-line against the Pat O-line, that's going to speak volumes as to where this game could go. Because if Gurley's getting five yards a clip and he's somewhere in the vicinity of 130 yards and you want to tack on C.J. Anderson maybe with another 50-60, chances are they're going to win this game. And same for the Pats, if nobody gets a glove on Brady, if somehow, some way they could wear that defensive line, and again, they don't have the running back that's certainly going to barrel that defensive line late in game to wear him down. Now, you did see that a little bit when the AFC Championship game, Sony Michelle, especially on those first couple of drives where they ate the clock, ton of plays, 
wore down that chief defense. But again, it is a chief defense. They're not a highly ranked unit in the NFL. Now you have the Rams. Same thing, they're not a highly ranked unit either. But when you have two guys on a defensive line who are monsters, and if somehow, some way, shape, or form, you can wear them down, that's going to be a big plus for New England. Do I think it's going to happen? Now, New England's offensive line, they could put me there. And somehow, some way, I'll be able to block those guys or you know, come up with the right schemes for them, whether it's in the passing game. As we all know, New England's probably going to dink and dunk. They don't have guys that are going to stretch the field, but it's just typical of how that unit is so cohesive that with a bunch of no-names, guys that you don't even think of anywhere near all-pro, even Pro Bowl status, they certainly get the job done. Can they do it one more time? I think they can. But having those two guys, and we all know Belichick with the matchups, that's going to be part number two. We know with him with the matchups, he's always going to want to take out a team's best player. You hear that a lot on the defensive side where he's going to look at the game plan and say, all right, the one guy I got to stop is Todd Gurley. Well, here's the thing. We don't know how healthy Gurley's going to be. We don't know how effective he's going to be. So you know that Belichick's not only going to take him out of the game as much as he can, but he's also going to take a wide receiver. Now, we know the Rams certainly have good wide receivers, but they don't have the one guy that's going to keep you up at night, a la Tyreek Hill or an Antonio Brown, a guy like that. You know, they have very resourceful guys. Robert Woods is a good guy to get a bunch of first downs. Brandon Cooks, who, of course, Belichick knows very well, played on New England last year. He's a speed guy. You also have a guy like Josh Reynolds, who I think could be an X factor in this game, or Tyler Higbee, the tight end. So they have a lot of good parts. Not one is could be, not one is dominant. Let's just put it that way, as far as their receiving core is concerned. But with a collective effort, you would think that if they could somehow, some way, five catches here, eight catches here, you don't need a monster game from any one of those guys. We all know it's going to be predicated on their running game, but still. They're certainly going to need to get some production from the wide receiver position. Who's that's going to be? Who's the one guy that Belichick's going to focus on? You would think right now it'd probably be Robert Woods, but I'm sure they would probably just play him straight up, do what they did like in Super Bowl 36, just manhandle them as best as possible, wear them down to the point where they'll get Jared Goff probably making bad decisions, and the next thing you know, he's either inaccurate, throwing balls, out of bounds or worse for him throwing interceptions so to me that's going to be the fascinating match of what Belichick does and then even what McVay does how he's going to counter because when you look at Belichick and how he coaches and when you watch these games and we've seen him time and time again the guys lived in the postseason Belichick you have to look at what the other coach is going to do to counter and to me the determining factor of this game and again, this is number two, or maybe even 2A for that matter. What does McVeigh do in the big spot? We all know McVeigh's the type of guy, he's going to be aggressive. He's a guy that's going to push the envelope. He's going to have to call a game similar to what Doug Peterson did last year in the Super Bowl. Whether it was on that last drive, remember with the Zach Ertz touchdown, where they went for it on fourth and five, and they had to go for it. What was it, five minutes remaining? They could have punted the ball. I believe they had all their timeouts. You can't do that against New England, especially late in the game or even early in the game for that matter. It's going to be interesting to see McVay if he's going to be able to 
pushed the right button at the right time, a la like he did in New Orleans, down 13 nothing at his own 30 when he had a fake punt. And that drive was extended and it led to a field goal. He's going to have to coach that same way. Because he knows he's not going to be able to settle for field goals in this game. He's going to have to score touchdowns. And whenever he has the chance, he's going to have to have the team's foot on the Patriots' collective throats in order to slay this monster. And I'm sure all he has to do is just look back two years ago to see what happened with the Falcons and how they weren't able to slay that dragon. Not to say he's probably going to go that far back because their offensive system is a lot different than Atlanta's. And remember, Atlanta had a different offensive coordinator at the time, Kyle Shanahan, who's long gone. So when you look at these matchups and you look at what they're going to do, what Belichick's going to do to take away the top threats on the Ram offense, but then again, what is McVeigh going to do as far as his defense is concerned going up against that Patriot offense? And then on top of that, is he going to stay aggressive? Not only is he going to push the envelope, but is he going to say, hey, fourth and three at the 28, okay, we could kick a 50, what would that be, a 45, 46-yard field goal? But if it's 7-3 and we have the ball, no, let's go for it because we don't want to be 7-6. We want to try to get that first down so we could hopefully push it to 10-6. It's going to be calls like that which is going to determine where this game is going to go or how this game is going to play out because you could look at the game last week or two weeks ago against the Saints and say, well, the Saints have just as much as a lethal offense as New England does. But again, New England's been there. New England knows what it's like to be down 21-0 in 28-3 in a Super Bowl. And I'm sure Sean McVay knows very well that he's going to have to put pedal to the metal for 60 minutes. He cannot lay off the gas. As it is, there have been reports that they actually text every week, McVay and Belichick. I'm sure they haven't texted probably in the last few days, and obviously they won't text each other this week. But you have the pupil and the student. Well, I should say the pupil and the teacher. Excuse me. Pupil is a student, Jay Reels. So when you look at this game, and it's easy, oh, who's the X factor, who's this, who's that? I mean, let's just boil it down to whomever is going to be fast and loose, aggressive, and adjust well. Because I tell you, if Gurley's running rampant in that first half and the Rams are up, let's say, 17-7 at halftime, you know damn well that Gurley is going to be a guy that Belichick's going to focus on, and he's going to have Goff and McVay go elsewhere. And we'll see how Goff and McVay adjust to that if that so happens. Because we know Belichick's going to make those changes on the fly. Is McVay going to do the same thing? And not only that, is he going to be able to push all the right buttons and be able to say, okay, well, here we go. He's, th- he's done this, now I have to do that. And as much as he wants to probably stay with the game plan, for a series or two, he may have to throw that out just to kind of throw off the scent of, all right, well, we're just going to go back to basics. No. He may have to be a little innovative on the fly. So that's what you have to do against Belichick. This is a chess match. And you've seen it time and time again. It's no secret. And people, you know well, you've watched these Patriots year in and year out in these big games. So you know what he's going to do. To me, what is McVay going to do? That's going to be the fascinating thing. And how I look at this game, the Pats, it's tough to bet against them 
you look at the young team like the Rams and McVay, he's 32 years old. This team, I don't want to say it's ahead of schedule. They're probably right on schedule considering the big year they had last year. They hosted a home game. They lost it against the Falcons. This year was probably a year where they thought they were going to take it to an NFC Championship game, which they did. And let's face it, the football gods were on their side, and they're here now, not the Saints. I think I'm rooting for the Rams hard. That's no secret. But how can you go against the Patriots? How? I could see this being a game similar to last year because that's what the NFL wants now. And with all the controversy that happened in the NFC Championship game, I could see this being flags left and right. You're going to see pass interference penalties, probably even phantom pass interference penalties in this game. I'm not going to say it's going to be 41-33 like last year, but I could see this game being in the 30s. Why not? It's going to be a close game because the Patriots usually play close games in the Super Bowl. And I get that the last couple of years, whether it was the overtime against Atlanta where they scored and they won by six, but that could have been a three-point game as we know. And then last year they won by eight and they were Hail Mary away from coming close to tying the game. I'm going to say this is Patriots 33, Rams 30. And it'll come down to the leg of Goskowski, and sure enough, he'll be the Adam Vinatieri of this decade and spoil the Pats' run to another title. Just like Vinatieri did back in 2001. And as far as legacies are concerned, people, they're, and listen, if we're going to sit here and talk about, oh, you know, what's going to happen? Is Brady the GOAT and Belichick? Is he better than Lombardi? To me, their legacy is already cemented just by making these games. Now, if they lose 58-0, is that going to look bad? Of course it is. But we know they're not going to lose by that much. We know Belichick wins and Brady at six. They'll tie with the Steelers all time. Obviously, they'll have the most Super Bowls as a quarterback and coach. They already do. So they're just going to add to that. So that's what I mean, that the legacy doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. And people are going to talk about that all week. Oh, Brady... Is he better than Montana? Is he the greatest of all time? So on and so forth. However you want to put that, that's on you. Of course, you're going to have the old school guys going to pick Montana because he's been to the game four times and never lost. Where Brady's been to the game eight times and he's lost three. And I get it that people are going to say, well, hey, the more Super Bowls you make, of course, you're not going to win them all. You're going to lose some of those. That's for the person who loves Brady. But the guy, he's not aging. He just continues to pound out these wins in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I mean, he has 29 postseason wins. 29. That's unheard of. You're never going to see that again. So to me, they're bulletproof. Now, Belichick pulls a brain lock move. Are people going to say, oh, he's not the greatest of all time? You know, if he pulls like he did against the Colts on that Sunday night game, fourth and two at at his own 30, Late in the game, and then somehow, some way, the Rams kick a field goal, win, and that's it. Right, it's not going to look good, but still, his legacy is going to be intact. And as far as McVay's concerned on the Rams, listen, the window is just starting to open here. Now, I'm not going to go ahead and say if they win this game, oh, start the dynasty, whatever. We all know that's not going to happen. Because a lot of teams are going to be gunning for the Rams. And we all know, as I've said before on the podcast, McVay's the wonder boy here. He's the guy that everybody wants 
to have as a coach on their team. So the Rams are set in that regard. But if somehow, some way, the Rams do win this game, he'll not only be the youngest coach ever to win a Super Bowl, which would beat Mike Tomlin, Super Bowl 43, but he's got a young nucleus. He's going to have a quarterback there for as long as he's there, you would think. They just re-signed the running back. They re-signed their defensive tackle. Yes, I understand there's going to be people moving regardless whether it's Aqib Tlaib, whether it's you know, other players or veteran players are on this team. We get that. But the core is going to be intact for a few years because the window in the NFL is more four to five years depending on how shrewd your front office is. Because look at the Patriots. And people say, well, what about the Patriots, Jay Reels? Well, when you're not paying a quarterback 25% of your salary cap and you're able to spread it out amongst other players and football players at that, that's why you have the success the way the Patriots have had over the last almost two decades. A lot of teams don't subscribe to that theory. But as far as McVay's concerned, he's going to be off to a tremendous start. This will... I mean, he's already on the map as far as NFL coaches are concerned, but people are going to look at this and say this guy is going to – the torch is going to be passed. Let's just put it that way. I mean, he still has to do it year in and year out. Just because he wins the Super Bowl doesn't mean, oh, he's the second best coach in the league. We got to see that over time. But I tell you, if he does cement this, he's, he's off to a great start. Now he's off to a good start. Second year, made it to a Super Bowl, good start. Wins this one two years in. Great start. Now, let's go to the... Well, before I get to the Hall of Fame finalists for Saturday, can we all put in a petition to shut down? We have had this government shutdown, as we know, that it's been uplifted for the next three weeks, so until February 15th, but the real shutdown should be this Pro Bowl. I didn't watch one second of it. I wouldn't watch it if it was in my backyard. Not only was the game in Orlando for the second straight year, it was pouring rain, it was winds, it was just... An abomination if anybody watched. And I didn't watch a second of it. But when I read the blurb on what happened, I know Patrick Mahomes was the offensive MVP and Jamal Adams was the defensive MVP. But when you have Jalen Ramsey catching touchdowns and Saquon Barkley, Alvin Kamara, and Ezekiel Elliott playing defensive line trying to rush the quarterback, I mean, what is this? Bad enough the Pro Bowl is a bore. And from experience, people. And just quick story. 2010, I actually won a trip to go to the Pro Bowl when it was in Miami. That was Super Bowl 44, Colts, and Saints. And let me tell you something. I'd rather watch paint dry. I mean, that game was just an absolute bore. To the point where I had to leave like halfway through the third quarter. I mean, that's how bad it was. So you got these guys, these fans, sitting in the stadium in the middle of Orlando, thinking it's going to be 75 degrees, it's 50 degrees and 20-mile-an-hour winds. The game is just an absolute snooze fest. Not only that, but you had Juju Smith-Schuster with a knee contusion. He had to limp off and limp out of the stadium. Who knows how bad that is? And I understand as Roger Goodell, the godfather himself, because they got to sell the jerseys and make more money for the league that is bulletproof to begin with. And what's that for? To see a game that nobody, I mean, really, anybody that's over... And maybe I'm giving them too much credit. Anybody that's over 35 does not watch this game. Unless you're a degenerate gambler, you have nothing else to do, or you love football that much. And I love football, but that's not football. It's not. I mean, how serious can you take it when Alvin Kamara, Ezekiel Elliott, and Saquon Barkley are lining up on defense? 
Gone. If you can't turn your set off there, then please, you got to find something else to watch. Ugh. Please. It, it was just an absolute abomination. But of course, again, it all boils down to money. They don't want this game to go away for whatever the reason. Of course, Goodell's going to look at it and say, well, hey, it's popular amongst the fans. They want to see the top players in the league perform. But again, this is, this is flag football. You know, you have your all-pro teams, first and second, that's great. You have to have that. If you want to have a Pro Bowl team, quote-unquote, then you know what? Just list the Pro Bowl team. These are the guys, and that's it. Don't have a game. If you want to have a weekend, you do like your little skills challenge and whatever, and even then, who's going to watch that? But please, that's just a waste of time. All right, enough on that. Let me get to the Hall of Fame finalists, which will happen Saturday. That's the... The whole deal with the honors, they'll announce the Defensive Player of the Year, Offensive Rookie of the Year, also the MVP, et cetera, et cetera, Coach of the Year. But just for the whole thing, finalists, because I could care less. I'm, I'm sure Patrick Mahomes is going to win the MVP. And I can't even tell you right now off the top of my head who's going to be Coach of the Year. I mean, like, the season's already over and gone with. Obviously, if I were to think about it, I could say, oh, yeah, it's going to be this guy. Oh, yeah, it could be that guy. Uh, you know, whatever. Who knows? Probably going to be Frank Reich, you would think. Nobody thought the Colts were going to ever 1-5 and they made the postseason. But as far as the Hall of Fame finalists are concerned, I'm just going to break it down this way. Uh, and I'm going to go through the list real quick. Kevin Mawai was the former Jet Center. Alan Fanica, predominantly Pittsburgh, played uh, left guard. Steve Hutchinson, another guard, Minnesota, Seattle. Ty Law, uh, known, of course, as the cornerback of the Patriots. Ed Reed, Ravens. Tony Gonzalez, tight end of the Chiefs. Champ Bailey, a corner, played at Denver mostly. Isaac Bruce, wide receiver of the Rams. Steve Atwater was a safety for Denver. John Lynch, safety predominantly for Tampa Bay. Don Coriel, Air Coriel, the former San Diego Charger coach. Tom Flores, the former Oakland Raider, LA Raider coach. Edron James, Colts running back. Richard Seymour, mostly known to the Patriots. And then Tony Baselli, Jacksonville, left tackle. On that list right there, the two locks are Ed Reed and Tony Gonzalez. I mean, that's you could just take that to the bank. Eyes closed. You hear those names, oh, a Hall of Fame. Now, I know they usually take, what, about six, including one guy. I didn't write down the who the Veterans Committee would pick, so that's not on here. But if you're looking at the rest of this list, Kevin Mawai is a center. I believe he was a six-time All-Pro First team, two-time second team, that's Hall of Fame number. I mean, that's six-time All-Pro. And then even Alan Fanica. Fanica, I believe, was a seven-time All-Pro. Those two guys got to go in. I understand they're not sexy picks. I understand they're not the pass rusher, the quarterback, the running back, or the linebacker. But those guys, to me, are Hall of Famers. And again, I understand people, oh, Alan Fanica, Jay Reels, oh, you're saying that because he's a stealer. The guy's a seven-time All-Pro, first team. And, you know, Pro Bowl, I understand, because you look at a guy like Champ Bailey. He made 12 Pro Bowls, but he was a first-team All-Pro three times. All right, does that account for something? Absolutely, but... And Champ Bailey was a very good corner, and he's borderline, if you ask me. But is he lock Hall of Fame? And that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about just good players. We're not talking about guys who are very good. We're talking about guys who, like, when you hear their name, if I tell you Ed Reed, oh, yeah, Lord Hall of Famer. Tony Gonzalez, oh, no doubt about it. Champ Bailey? You know, Champ Bailey is not Deion Sanders. He's not Rod Woodson. 
And Isaac Bruce, who had excellent numbers too. Greatest show on turf. I understand people can say he won a Super Bowl. He was only a two-time first-team All-Pro. Now, he has over 15,000 yards pass, uh, you know, receptions as far as yards are concerned, which I believe is third all-time. So that accounts for something. But so many wide receivers get in. Is this his year to get in? Steve Hutchinson's another guy. He's made a ton of all-pro teams, first team. But to me, Fanica has to go before him because Hutchinson, I believe, had four or five on his resume where Fanica had seven. So, sorry. If you're going to bring in a guard, Fanica has to go first. No offense to the Steve Hutchinson fans in the Pacific Northwest and in Minnesota. Ty Law. He did have 53 interceptions, and I believe Chan Bailey had 52. Law was a very good corner. Very good. Is he a Hall of Famer? He's borderline. To me, he's on that same line with Chan Bailey. Steve Atwater, he was a two-time first-team All-Pro. I understand hard-hitting safety, especially of his era. But that goes the same for John Lynch. Lynch was also a guy. A couple of All-Pro teams. Good guy. Fierce competitor, Hall of Famer. Was he Ronnie Lott? No. Was he Ed Reed? No. On that list next year, I believe Troy Polamalu. Is he hit? No. Edron James. I know he had over ten thousand yards. Was a very good running back. Is he Hall of Famer? Can't say he is. Tony Baselli. I know he had a few years, but Baselli, his career was cut short by injury. Certainly would have been. I think he was a three-time All-Pro, but he only played six years. I would have to say no. Richard Seymour, a very, very good defensive lineman. But again, I'd have to say no. Tom Flores, I understand he won two Super Bowls, but the guy was, listen, that's like saying George Seifert. Seifert won two Super Bowls. Is he a Hall of Famer? No. Tom Flores, I'm sorry. I, I, he, to me, he's not a Hall of Famer, not my eyes. So if I had to pick out all those guys, to me it's going to be Mawai, Fanica, Reed, Gonzalez, Air Coriel. We understand that offense, San Diego, Fouts, Kellen Winslow, John Jefferson, Wes Chandler, Chuck Muncie, the running back, get all that. Hall of Famer, and we understand there's coaches in the Hall of Fame and everyone a thing. Marv Levy made it four Super Bowls. Of course, you want to give him that, that's fine, but he's in the Hall of Fame. Do I think he's a Hall of Famer? No. I guess if I had to put a coach in, maybe I would put Coriel before Flores. And people are going to say, oh, yeah, why are you going to put him in before Flores? Well, Coriel obviously took the lead by storm with his offense. What does that do to trump two Super Bowls? Well, if you look at Flores' record, despite the fact he won two Super Bowls, the, the, nothing else sticks out. And we understand that that's the pinnacle of the sport to win the Super Bowls. But I don't have his numbers in front of me, and I'll make sure next week I'll get him once this list is been put out and we'll go through it so trust me you'll see why Tom Flores to me is not a Hall of Famer so that's it I got those guys and I guess whomever the veterans committee is going to pick and I don't have the name off the top of my hand that's six right there Moai, Fanica, Reed, Gonzalez then you have the whomever is on that list there now, I don't know if you want to throw in Coriel if you want to throw in a coach there's your six what can I tell you and while we're on the subject, we'll go to baseball real quick. We had the four Hall of Fame newly minted inductees, which will take place up in Cooperstown in July. Mariano, Mariano Rivera, unanimous, which is unbelievable when you think about it. To think that when you look at the history of this sport, how Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Jackie Robinson, 
Ted Williams, Willie Mays, Cy Young, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson. Uh, should I continue? None of those people ever got 100% of the vote. Mickey Mantle, Frank Robinson, they never got 100% of the vote. In fact, the closest was Ken Griffey Jr. a couple years ago. Was at 99.6 or whatever it was. And here he is, Mariano, 100%. And good for him. And I'll say this, and this is not going on a limb by any stretch, but we will never, ever, and I underline that in a big, giant black Sharpie, never, ever see the likes of a guy like Mariano Rivera ever again. The stat that just jumps at, you could talk about the postseason games, and but to me the stat is he pitched 141 innings in the postseason. His ERA was .7. Okay, and, and that's the whole postseason. DS, CS, WS. But in those 141 innings, he gave up two home runs. And mind you, he pitched to what, 2013? For that 97 to 2013, well, 96 to 2013. He gave up two home runs. The last home run he gave up was game two of the World Series to Jay Payton. So from the year 2000 to 2013, in the postseason, he never gave up another home run. If that doesn't tell you right there he's not a home fame pitcher, then you just do not know what you're watching. As far as his one-time teammate, Mike Mussina, to me, is not a Hall of Famer. And people are going to say, oh, Jay Reels, come on, look at the record. He was 270, 153. His ERA was 3.6, which is very high. And people could say, oh, but look at the steroid era. Now, I get he had some very, very good years in Baltimore. He's won 18 games, 18 or 19 games on four or five occasions. He won 20 games on his last season in 2008, as we know. And was in the Cy Young race, I think he was in the top five or top six, five or six times. Great, good for him. But when you look at the pitchers of his generation, he was not dominant. He was certainly consistent. He was very good, and he actually had Hall of Fame seasons. But when you add it all up, despite the fact that he was 117 games over 500, which I understand that's a barometer that a lot of people are going to look at in the Hall of Fame. Because most pitchers that are in the Hall of Fame, if you're at least close to or definitely above 100 games over 500 for your career, you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. Does that apply to every pitcher? No, but that's a barometer. You look at Roy Halladay. Now, his career, he was 203 and 105, I believe. So he was 98 games above 500. But the guy won multiple Cy Youngs. He pitched a perfect game. He pitched a no-hitter in the postseason. He was dominant. He was a guy, and Yankee fans know, you've seen him in Toronto, even Met fans later in his career when he was pitching with the Phillies. The guy was a dominant pitcher. Was Mike Mussita dominant? You know, every pitcher has his day in the sun. Let's, you know, call it what it is. He had a near-perfect game in Fenway Park. Carl Everett on a one-two pitch, poops one in the left center. I get that. But at the same time, if you're going to ask me, who do I put on a pitch in a game seven, Roy Halladay or Mike Mussita, <laughs> Hands down, you could ask other people. They're going to pick Roy Halladay. And I got nothing against Bucina, but again, to me, he just wasn't that guy. And I get that people are going to say, oh, well, he could have won two championships, could think in 2001 when they lost to the Diamondbacks, and also 2004 if Mariano got that save against the Red Sox and they would have gone on and beaten St. Louis, but it didn't happen. So as much as you want to talk about winning a World Series is going to cement your career, it's not a Super Bowl. It's not like a quarterback winning a Super Bowl. 
unless you're dominant. And despite the fact that he had a very good, he had an above average career, but did he have a dominant career? He did not. And Edgar Martinez gets in. We all know how great of a hitter he was for his generation. And I get that all he was a DH and you really can't give the DH, but it's going to start happening. You know, David Ortiz is going to get in there. Harold Baines, we talked about weeks ago, was a joke. But again, that was a veterans committee spearheaded by Jerry Reinsdorf, Roberto Alomar, Tony La Russa, guys who played with or managed or signed a Harold Baines. So he certainly had a lot of influence to get his push into the Hall of Fame. But Martinez... Despite the fact that he didn't have the Gordy numbers, he didn't have the 3,000 hits or the 500 home runs, but he was a dominant hitter. When you bat 316 or whatever it was, 313. And Mariano, funny enough, in their little press conference, he says, hey, you know, you owe me a few dinners because I attributed to padding your uh, Hall of Fame stats. And what did he bat, 571 against Mariano? Well, that's all you need to know because nobody dominated Mariano. Some guys had success. Some guys, you know, hit well or pretty well against them, but... Edgar Martinez just flat out hit him. And then you look at next year, you have Derek Jeter who's going to be first year on the ballot. And then the fascinating thing is, when will the steroid guys get in? Bonds and Clemens got a little bit closer. I think there was somewhere in the 60 to 62%. But because you don't have many guys other than Jeter, and we'll know, we'll see if he's going to be a unanimous guy. And what does that mean moving forward? Are you going to see a lot more unanimous guys when Albert Pujols comes up for Hall of Fame or... Mike Trout, now, of course, that's down the road. Trout still has pretty much another half of his career to go, and then some. But let's just say when their time comes and they're worthy, are those guys going to get into it 100%? Chances are probably will. You would think Mariano broke the mold here because now you're going to have a different set of baseball writers, especially in the years to come. And I'm sure those guys are going to look at the steroid guys and say, you know what, the guys are dominant. I understand steroids, but... When you hit 762 home runs or when you have seven Cy Young Awards or even A-Rod for that matter, when you four home runs away from 700, you belong in the Hall of Fame. And I can see that happening. Not anytime soon, but certainly maybe in the next decade. But as far as next year is concerned, Bonds and Clemens, I think they still have a couple more years on the ballot. You would think they'll be that much closer. Again, Jeter's the only lock coming out for 2020. Do those guys finally get the nod? where Cooperstown will call and they'll have their plaques in those hallowed halls in Cooperstown, New York. As far as off the field stuff, the Mets signed a relief pitcher, Justin Wilson, who was on the Cubs, a left-hander, who has a live arm. He is wild. He does walk a lot of guys. Very good on lefties, not as well as righties. It's another guy to add to the bullpen. Is he a sexy signing? No. He's under the radar, but you can only see and hope. Hopefully he's not this year's Anthony Swarzak. And he's coming off a year that he was, eh. You know, Swarzak actually had a good year in 2017 before he signed with the Mets. And we all know last year he was just, he was hurt half the year, but he was terrible when he pitched. So we'll see Justin Wilson could be this year's, though the left-handed version of Anthony Swarzak. Let's hope that's not the case. A.J. Pollock signs four years with the Dodgers. Don't know what the terms are. So that's one other guy off the board. And we're still waiting to see where Manny Machado and Bryce Harper will end up. Now, Machado may have another suitor. The San Diego Padres look like they're th- ready to throw their hat in the ring. 
Now, the Padres, we all know they have a lot of young talent. A lot of people even rate them as having the best farm system in the sport where you have Fernando Tatis highlighting who was at the top of that. So we're just days away from February 1st, people. Is it going to be the time, the place where these guys are going to sign? Spring training is now three-plus weeks away. So, listen, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think these guys are panicking. Now, will they hold out now? I mean, let's get to spring training first before we even start thinking that. And what I mean by hold out, meaning that, oh, they're not going to sign at all. You would think these guys are going to sign. They're both 26 years old. We know they're looking for the big jackpot. The owners are not going to pay them 10 years, $300 million. You know, they're willing to make these guys a part of their team at seven for 175, or I'm sure probably 200 at the most, but there's no way that they're dishing out the Giancarlo Stanton 13-325. That's not happening. So again, we're just standing by, waiting to see who's going to be that team with the highest offer that's going to get one of these two generational stars. I mean, listen, that's all. What else can you say about it? We're just going to continue to wait until somebody comes to the forefront. Is it going to be the Padres now here all of a sudden with Manny Machado? Eh. I'm sure they're fishing around just trying to see. Now, they made a big deal last year when they signed Eric Hosmer to a big deal. Do they have that much more in the coffers to bring in a guy like Manny Machado? Mains be seen. All right, let me uh, knock two coconuts with one stone here with the All-Star Games, NHL, and then NBA's in a couple weeks. But just the, the All-Star Games on a whole, I just can't be bothered. The NHL, I, I didn't realize it was Saturday night. They usually play it Sunday afternoon. It was Saturday night. And at one point, I saw the score was 10-2. to 2. Eric Carlson from San Jose scored a goal. I know the crowd went crazy because the game was in San Jose. When you look at a 10-3 score... And Sidney Crosby gets the MVP, four goals, all right, for whatever, whoop de do. But my thing is, is just get rid of these games. I mean, do, do people really watch this stuff? The baseball star game is, bores you to tears, and it's been awful for at least the last 10 years. Ba- bad enough that the American League wins all the time, and not a National League guy, but that doesn't, you know, who cares about that? But when you have the type of game where the NBA, these last year wasn't as bad as the year before, you know, what was it, 198 to 195, whatever that crazy score was? And we just talked about the NFL Pro Bowl, which is the joke of jokes. But the NHL All-Star game is the same. How's the score 10-2? And then this round robin with the divisions. I, please, can we just go back to East and West? Can we just make it that simple? And the same with the NBA. Now you have the captains, Giannis Attentacompo and LeBron. They're going to be the guys to do this draft, which is going to be on TV. Now, last year, a lot of people were thinking, oh, is there any way we could find out who picked who in what spot? Because a lot of the controversy was, oh, who are, who are the last players taken on each team? As if that's the biggest deal. These players get selected prior to, you know, by the fans and the players and the coaches. So what if they end up last on LeBron's draft or last on Giannis's draft? Does it really matter? Is somebody going to be that upset? Oh, you know, I can't believe I got picked last. For an ego thing, all right, fine. But you know what, if you're already on the team... I can see if a thing where your name is there and all of a sudden, oh, no, we're going to take this guy instead. That's not going to happen. And, you know, it's just a joke. I mean, just they, I understand they're trying to bring some excitement, generate some interest or more interest for that matter. And I get for the millennial or for the 10-year-old, the 15-year-old, whatever it may be, you know, they're into that. I could, I mean, please, 
These games are just they're no fun to watch. Watch the highlights. You watch the dunks. You watch the behind-the-back passes. Maybe you'll see a three from Steph Curry from three-quarters court. All right, fine. That's it. These games do not pique my interest in the slightest. And then this draft, I guess it's going to be aired in a couple of weeks, whatever it may be, or maybe the week after next, because now we're probably after the Super Bowl, I would think. Uh, to me, it's why bother? It just doesn't make any sense to have to sit there to watch players that, for the most part, are going to be disinterested and have played this Matador defense and just, hey, go right ahead, no problem. I'm not trying to say they got to play as if it's game seven of the NBA finals with two minutes to go, but at the same time, please. Can we have some element of competition here? But there's been a lot of NBA news, whether it's Victor Oladipo, you know, suffering that quad tendon in his right knee, which is a terrible blow for the Pacers. You also have the, yesterday here at the Garden, Carmelo Anthony was in the audience watching Dwayne Wade and perhaps his last game at the Garden. I don't know if they come back after last night's game, but Carmelo, who chances are will be either waived or traded before February 7th, which is the deadline next week, and where he's going to be, you know, deemed to be fit, Remains to be seen. I know he was quoted as saying that, oh, I just want to be happy wherever I go. I just want to make sure it's the right situation. You know, just saying all the right things. I know very early on I mentioned maybe him going to Philly. With Jimmy Butler in the mix, chances are he's not going to even sniff the Sixers. So you wonder if there's going to be a remarriage in Denver with the Nuggets. Now we know Carmelo was limited. You could pretty much just eat him, put him... At the three-point line, which is probably where he's the most effective because we know he's not going to play a look at defense. You know, game back to the basket. We understand that's not the way this, the league is anymore. But I would think, hey, with his body, his frame, despite the fact he's 34 years old, hey, why not post up? Do whatever it takes, man. Just don't live on the line like you always did. Try to attack the basket. Or if not, stay on the wing and try to drain some threes. So who knows? I mean, I don't know where he's going to go. A lot of people think he's going to go to L.A., but they got to secure a roster spot for him, and I'm sure they're not going to release anybody on their roster just for the sake of bringing Carmelo into the mix. And I don't think it would be a right fit anyway. I understand it may help in the short term as this injury with LeBron. They said he's going to be playing in the coming days. And the Lakers, of course, have slipped here, and we talked about it last week on the podcast. You know, They have not played well in their outside on the outside looking in the Western Conference, but that neither here nor there because the Western Conference is just jam-packed with all those teams. You know, it's not as if they're five, six games out and they're digging themselves into a big hole. Now to continue to play this way, of course, different story. But as of right now, despite the fact they're on the outside looking in, they're still going to be in the mix when it comes to the postseason. But the big story coming through today is Anthony Davis as he is stated that he wants out of New Orleans. Now, he's not a free agent until after next year. So the summer 2020 is his year where he can become a free agent. But it's been reported that his agent, Rich Paul, clutch, sports, down with LeBron, the whole nine, that he's going to, well, he wants to play for contender. He wants to play for a championship. And as I said at the top, the bidding war is going to be between the Lakers and Celtics. That's all there is to it. Unless there's going to be a team somewhere 
that's going to come out from the ashes, that's going to make a deal. And the reason why the Lakers and Celtics make sense is because the Lakers have young players that they could trade now, similar to the Celtics, but they could also trade draft picks. And with the way the Celtic draft picks are forming, and we all get that if Danny H does his homework or if the GM, whichever GM gets these picks, they do their homework, they could get some decent picks or decent players. Now, granted, they may be in the teens because a lot of people thought that Sacramento pick was going to be in the top five, but right now it's looking like it's probably going to be anywhere between like 13 to 17, especially if they make the playoffs. They also have the Memphis pick. Memphis is not playing well, and I'm sure that's what the team will probably want to request anyway is just that Memphis pick. As well as Jalen Brown. Now, they would have to trade Al Horford in the process. He has one more year left on his deal at big money. So you look at the Davis contract for one more year. You take that out. And then, of course, you got to give him a guy like Jalen Brown. I'm sure they're going to probably want to Jason Tatum as well. But chances are you're going to have to give him Brown, Horford, and two of their number one picks from next year to get Anthony Davis. And if you're the Lakers, you know Brandon Ingram is going to be in that trade. Will Josh Hart be in that trade? Lonzo Ball, I know he's hurt right now. You know, it's not going to be any of the veteran players. You can forget the JaVale McGee's and the Lance Stevenson's. And it's going to be young players. And whatever the Laker pick is this year, I'm sure they'll want to take that too. Or maybe a future pick. Who knows? But those are going to be the two teams that are going to be on top of the whole Anthony Davis. And if there's any other team that's out there, no matter whether it's the Brooklyn Nets, because they have a lot of cap room, or any other team that has a ton of cap room. Now, the Nets can't really do it only because they have good, young, lunch pail type players. They don't have a player that's certainly going to be a game changer if they got traded to New Orleans. I mean, D'Angelo Russell? Is he going to be that guy? Chances are no. You know, not going to trade Dinwiddie, although he's hurt now. He has a thumb issue. He's going to be out three to six weeks after surgery. You know, the Nets don't really have that guy a la Jalen Brown or even the Lakers' Brandon Mangrum that they could build this team around. So that's why, to me, let the tug of war begin between the Lakers and Celtics for Anthony Davis. And lastly on this, I don't think this trade's going to happen anytime soon. With the deadline coming up, I know a lot of people are thinking, oh, let's see if the Lakers try to get him before the deadline. If the Pelicans are smart, they would look at this and say, we're going to ride this year out and then come in the offseason, that's it. Who's going to be the one that's going to up the ante to get the brow? Who's going to be the team that's going to pony up the most players, draft picks, whatever it may be, to get this guy? Because the Pelicans would be stupid. I mean, just you would shake your head unless they did get a King's Ransom back here before September, uh, February 7th. But you take your time. I won't even say anything. You just say, hey, we're just going to play out this year. We'll discuss this in the offseason. That's be the best thing because you know all the microphones are going to go to the GM and the coach Alvin Gentry and they're going to wonder, oh, what's going to happen here with your franchise player? They could squash all that nonsense by saying, you know what? We got plenty of time. We understand his demands. We understand where he wants to go or what he wants to do. We'll discuss this in the offseason. And that's it. Simple as that. But to me, it's going to be Lakers or Celtics. So, at least right now. Well, I mean, are the Bucks going to make a deal? 
Well, the Bucks are going to be in the mix to try to bring him in to play with Giannis or any other team that's trying to take that next step. Now, the Bucks are already there. The Bucks have just been a you know, force all year in the East. But, you know, that other team that could certainly use this guy that's going to put him over the top. And obviously, if the Lakers and the Celtics, those are the first two teams that come to mind, not only because they're trying to get to that NBA Paramount, but they know that they have the resources to do it. A lot of these other teams, yeah, they may have a ton of cap. They may have this, but do they have the players? No. Do they have the draft picks? Eh, not really. Certainly not of the ilk of the Celtics and Lakers. So that's where we're at there with the NBA people, and that pretty much does it for this week's j podcast. Once again, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for you to take the time out to download and listen to this program. Please, please do that each and every week. If you tell your friends, tell people who love sports, like sports, or are interested in sports, or want to get interested in sports, just let them know to download this podcast on any of the platforms, whether it's Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify. Uh, not only that, but you can do it right on your phone, people, or on your tablet. It's very simple. As much as you're on your phones all day, whether you're on social media, through your emails, text messaging, this literally takes 90 seconds. You go to your podcast app, you type in the J Reels podcast, you'll see my cartoon icon pop up. All you got to do is hit subscribe. Please post a rating, leave a review, all that. Because what that does is it just generates interest with all the other sports podcasts that are out there in that universe. And of course, with that, it'll just increase the visibility of this pod. So your participation is much needed. Without you guys, listen, would the show go on? Of course, but without your help, your participation and listening each and every week, it goes without saying how much I'm forever grateful and indebted for you to just take part in this dream and take part of listening to what it is I have to say about sports. If you want to send me an email or send me a DM on any of my social media accounts, you can feel free to do that at the J Reels podcast at gmail.com as well as J Reels on Instagram, J Reels one, just the number on Twitter or the J Reels podcast on my Facebook page coming at you each and every week on a Monday. I've been trying to look for a writer to get on and also a former NFL player who's played in the Super Bowl. Trying to get them on this week. Hopefully, if I can get them on before Friday, it would be great because I would like to have that right before the Super Bowl just to get a little temperature of what's going on in Atlanta, whether it's about the game itself, strategies, maybe even some off-the-field stuff. I'm working on that fast and furiously. So, please, people, hopefully I can get that. If so, you'll see that all on my social media if that does uh, come to pass. And, again, once uh, it goes without saying how much uh, I appreciate your support and love from the bottom of my heart. Continue to deliver the latest and greatest of all the sports here on the J Reels Podcast. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Hopefully you'll hear from me before the end of the week, but if not, enjoy the game. We'll recap it all next Monday, first word, here on the J Reels Podcast. And until then, on the flip, baby.